Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. by the will of God, thank you, <laughs> to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. We're here to grow and learn and receive what you have to say to us, what you want to do in our lives, even in the study of two verses. Lord, it's, it's really about our heart posture and really your promises to this morning that, that we're two or more gathered in your name. You're here. You're present. We sense your work. We thank you for your presence today. And we pray that you would just take us deeper today, Lord. Take us to that next step of relationship with you. We just commit this time to you. We say again, come Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Show us what you want to show us in our lives today. And show us Jesus today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, here in Ephesians chapter 1, we are doing an introduction. We are beginning a new series, a Bible study series that will be a journey for the next three to four months through the book of Ephesians. So we're starting a new book today. And the series is entitled, Two the faithful ones, to the faithful ones. And we'll unpack that a little bit more uh, here in our time. I want to say this, that as we come to just two verses here in chapter one, as we crack open the book of Ephesians and we see in all caps in some of our Bibles and big letters, the, the, just the phrase Ephesians across the header of this book, uh, in many ways, some of you might know this if you've read the book of Ephesians before, but we have come here to one of the highest points in scripture. If you think of the Bible as sort of like um, the view of, of a mountain range, I know we're all so familiar with the views of mountain ranges here in South Florida. Not the dump, right, but actual mountains. The family and I are headed up on a, on a much-needed vacation in a couple weeks to Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm so excited to show my kids what mountains are. I'm really looking forward to it. And, and as you're, you're heading out of, out of Florida, you get into Georgia, and you're making your way into that Appalachian area, whether it's the Blue Ridge Mountains or the Smoky Mountains, there's that view you get that is so foreign to us as Floridians, where you just see the, the, the background of, of just mountain ranges for miles. And there's often, usually depending on where you are, but there's often a peak that will outrange all of the other mountains. And uh, in many ways, we can think of Ephesians that way. The whole book of the, the whole scripture, all 66 books, is just this beautiful portrait, really, of Jesus. But if we think of it like a mountain range, the book of Ephesians, this short six-chapter book, has to be considered one of the heights of scripture, just this incredible peak. Uh, it has been called the queen of the epistles. It has also been called the crown of Paulinism. The Apostle Paul has written most of the New Testament in terms of book size. Actually, Luke wrote the most content. Not a lot of people know that. Luke and Acts together make up more than what Paul wrote. But Paul wrote most books of the Bible. And out of all of it, many have attributed the book of Ephesians to Paul's greatest hits. Do you know what I'm saying? So like this is Paul's Mona Lisa. This is his starry night. 
No? Okay. This is his stairway to heaven. Is that better? Okay. This is Paul's, how about this, his wonder wall. Okay. Okay. You get the idea. We'll just move on from that. But you get the point. It's, a, it's, it's the crown achievement of Paul's Holy Spirit inspired writing. The book of Ephesians that we're going we're gonna to study through for the next few months is a summary of the Christian faith. There's really nothing left out of the book of Ephesians in a basic sense. Here's what the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, has to say about the book of Ephesians. He says, the epistle to the Ephesians is a complete body of divinity. Whoever would see Christianity, I love this, in one treatise, let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the epistle to the Ephesians. A lot of times when new believers um, are asking about what the best book of the Bible to study uh, to really get acquainted with the Christian faith, they're told to read the Gospel of John. And I agree that the Gospel of John is the, the best way to just get to know the center of the Christian faith, which, which is Jesus. But if their question is, after understanding who Jesus is in a general sense, what is the Christian faith about? It's the book of Ephesians. So here's how I feel this morning. I feel like we have come to the entrance of almost like a national park that we're about to walk through. And for the next few months, we're going to get a view of like a Grand Canyon called the Book of Ephesians. And if you ever, you ever been somewhere like this before, it was some beautiful scenic landscape. I think of Brittany and I years ago got to do a trip to Italy, and we did the Amalfi Coast thing. When, you, when you're, you're in Naples, it just kind of looks like an Italian town. Um, you know, an Italian town, we all know that. Uh, but when you make your way out to the coast, it's like out of nowhere, you come off some cross street and it's like, boom, Mediterranean glory, okay? And, and that's kind of where we are right now. We're, we're about to pass through an entrance into one of the most incredible views here in the book of Ephesians. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm going to do, we have another introduction, a lot of introductions this morning. We introed a new pathway, we introed the Reedies, and now I'm introing what I'm like, I just subtly said, the, one of the greatest books in the Bible. Um, and I feel similar to Ephesians, like how I feel about the Reedies, like so much to say, but so little time. And so, you know me, I rarely don't have enough to say. And so, because I'm just so passionate about Jesus and his word. And so, um, this morning, here's how I thought to, to break down this intro to this book. So much to say, so little time. And so... Here's the title of the message, For Ephesian G's, which sounds like an R&B group. It's not, okay? <laughs> that's funny, right? Um, I just giggled. That's weird that I laughed at that, and I said that. But for Ephesian G's, uh, right here in the first two opening verses of this book, you have Paul himself giving an introduction to this book, and there are four G's that he gives us to understand what we're heading into. So almost think of it like, we're in the, the tour guide's office, like the, the, the main, like, what's that usually called? Like the welcome center? You know what I'm saying? At the, at the I love the, the whole, like, um, national park theme that I'm going with here. But, like, we're at the, the tourist welcome center, and we're, Paul's the tour guide, and he's about to let us know where we're headed with an R&B group called the Four Ephesian Gs, okay? Here are the four Gs that we get in these, in these uh, two verses. I want to say that I've been teaching and thinking a lot this week, and so apologize. I did my best here, okay? But who's the guy behind it? That's real deep. That's the first question. Who are the ones getting it? What's the goal of it, and what's the greeting from it? So we're going to walk away today understanding a little bit of, 
of what this book holds for us, at least who the guy behind it is, who are the ones getting it, the goal of it, and the greening from it. And though it's only two verses, there's some really awesome stuff here. And so uh, let's get into this. The first question, who's the guy, the first of four Ephesian G's, who's the guy behind it? An epistle, remember, is a, is a letter. The classic like youth group joke, maybe you heard this growing up, an epistle is not the wife of an apostle, okay? An epistle is a letter, a pastoral letter. Um, here we have the book of Ephesians. Who's, who's the guy behind it? Well, we see there in verse 1, simply Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Whereas today we might sign our name at the end of a letter. We all have our cute little signatures on our emails. Best regards. See you soon. All, you know, uh, sincerely. Well, Paul's beginning his letter identifying who he is, giving some weight and authority to the words that are going to follow. When you know who's knocking at the door, you maybe you're going to pay a little bit more attention. And so Paul identifies himself unequivocally as the author of this book. And if you're new to Paul, here's what's really interesting. The way that he tells his story in just a few words is remarkable here. Really, all that you need to know about Paul can be summed up in this phrase. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. This is like a summary of Paul's story. Um, Paul, here's another way to say this. Paul didn't wake up one day, part of this guy's story, and say, I'm going to be a Christian. You know what? I changed my will this morning. And I'm going to go from, if you know the story of Paul, I'm going to go from being the primary antagonist of the church. Paul was going out of his way inconveniently to do everything to persecute the church. Paul was a zealous Jew, a Pharisee. He was hostile towards the gospel. He was violent towards Christians. And he had a life-changing moment. But that moment didn't happen because Paul said, you know what, I changed my mind. You know, instead of being the primary enemy of the church, I think I'll become its primary leader. That's what I'll do. That's what I'll do instead. I, I'm, you know what? I don't hate Jesus anymore. I'm going to decide now to love Jesus, worship Jesus, serve Jesus, and then in the end, give my life for Jesus. Paul doesn't say, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of Paul. This is the summary of Paul's story. Paul's life is a declaration of sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Paul says, I am where I am because God pursued me and saved me of his own will. Isn't that beautiful? I'm where I am and I'm who I am by the will of God. It was what God chose for me. He pursued me. I didn't really pursue him. In fact, we see this in Galatians 1 where Paul is telling a little bit more of his story. He's like talking to this church. He's like, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. This is just what Jesus does. He takes people who seem to be the greatest enemies of the faith, and he makes them the greatest leaders and influencers. It's just such a beautiful display. Like, like Jesus could have showed up to anybody on their high horse. You know what I mean? Like just some lower level guy. But Jesus is like, I'm going to go for the top enemy and make this guy who's in the eyes of the church a terrorist and make him instead one of my apostles. It's just beautiful. Paul goes, you know what I used to do, how I persecuted the church of God. And look what he says. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, 
being more exceedingly jealous for the traditions of my fathers. This is what Paul's God was. His idol wasn't so much Yahweh, it was the traditions of Judaism. We could fall into the same trap as well. We're more obsessed with the traditions of the Christian faith rather than Jesus himself. And this was Paul. He was so passionate that he was murdering Christians that broke tradition, that violated their religious views. But notice what he says. But when it pleased God, think about your salvation today through these terms. It wasn't first your idea for you to be destined for eternity. If you today are sitting in your seat as someone who has been redeemed through the cross, glory to God, you're forgiven of your sin, you've been adopted as a child of God, Paul's going to talk all about it. That didn't happen because you thought, you know what, I think I should be redeemed. I think I should be forgiven. It didn't begin with you or I, it began with the heart and the mind of God towards you and I. This is beautiful. We don't lo- he doesn't love us because we first loved him, Amen. We love him because he first loved us. And Paul goes, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. I love that. Even all the while while Paul was being raised in his own life against the things of God. Listen, you never know the plan that God has for someone. Never know. It's so easy to write people off. You know what I'm saying? Because of their behavior, we judge them according to the flesh. You have no idea what God has planned for that person before they were even born. Paul's saying, that's my story. None of us boast in ourselves, well, I'm a Christian because I, you know, God has special favor upon me because I was raised in a Christian home and I, I've done this, I've done that. Paul's like, I don't get any glory. In his past life, he's like, I did the glory game, the point system thing. He's like, by the way, and I beat all y'all, okay? But I've thrown that out because now I don't boast in me, I boast in Jesus. I boast in his love for me, not my love for him. And Paul's talking about this, that in God's own wisdom and and will, and sovereignty, he separated me from my mother's womb, and called me, how? Through his grace. This was all a matter of grace. Paul didn't look, uh, Jesus didn't look on at Paul and go, you know what, I see a good candidate for salvation there, you know? He can, he's really be behaving well, and his works have gotten my attention. It's like, no, Paul's works, if anything, were against the person of Jesus. It's all grace. Can someone say amen? It's all grace. Are you living in works today? Can we just be reminded that we are saved by grace and grace alone to the glory of God alone? It's all grace. By the way, it's still all grace. Christian who's still trying so hard to pay back their lost years as a believer, it's still grace. So Jesus saves Paul through sovereign grace, but God who separated me from my mother's womb called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is Paul's journey. Paul became an apostle by the will of God. Uh, Jesus literally revealed himself, not just in Paul, but to Paul on the road to Emmaus, or sorry, the road to Damascus, and mightily saved the apostle Paul by grace through his love. This is is not just a display of the story of Paul's salvation. This is also a really beautiful display into like what we should all have as Christians, which is a confident sense of your identity in Christ. Which, by the way, needs to, needs to be rooted in what God wants for you, what God says about you, and what he wills for your life. Paul goes, I am an apostle, not because I'm trying to wear Saul's armor, not because I'm because I was like, you know, apostles seem to get really good book deals, they get really famous and popular, they get to write Bible books, I think I'll become an apostle, you know? Paul's like, I am just being who God wills me to be. What a great Thing to think about, isn't it? When's the last time you did that? 
Not that you don't know the answer. When was the last time you just stopped to, to ask God to remind you of who he's willed you to be? What he's called you to do? Maybe you're in a season right now of life where you're like, God, who am I in you? What's your will for me? I'm not necessarily called to be a capital A apostle, but how have you, how have you willed to use me? Can I tell you, God loves to answer that question. He, lo he loves to answer that longing in the heart of someone that just says, I don't want to live by my will. The best life, God, that I could live is to be and do the things you've made me to do. You know what I'm saying? So what a great, great posture and place to be. God, what's your will for me? Can I give you a little secret to this question, by the way? Trying to find out who you are and God's will, what your place is in his story. I think a little insight to this is Titus chapter 1, where Paul introduces himself to Titus this way. He says, Paul, I want you to notice this phrase. Before apostle, he says, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've just found that often when there's confusion about God's will for my life, there's usually something I'm holding on to. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, God, this is what I want to be your will for my life, so I'm coming to you praying my will into your will. Which is such a crazy posture to have. God, here's my will. Make it happen. Make it yours in Jesus' name. It's like, and Jesus taught us not to pray that way. He taught us to pray this way that comes before God as servants to his will, right? God, what's your will for my life? Here's, here's, did I just say what's, the, what's your will for my wife? That's a good question too. Brittany, what's God's will for my wife? Um, to love her husband. And you, okay, sorry. Um, when you're asking that question, God, what's your will for me? Just begin to say, God, your will, not mine. I'm a, I'm a servant of your will. I'm not a servant of another man. I'm not a servant of even myself. I exist as your servant. When you, I think when you get this piece right, like your life just belongs to God, you'll figure out what you're supposed to do. That's just a little something, okay? And then the last thing, uh, last observation I want to make, you know, three points about five words here, but it is just, you get a perspective into Paul's faith here as he intros this book. You see kind of a summary of his, of his salvation. You, you see a display of, of, of confident identity that's rooted in what God's will for him is, which we should all have. Uh, you also see, it's kind of hidden, but you see insight into Paul's faith, which you, you can see this anywhere you read the Apostle Paul. The, Lord's, the Lord gave Paul a really powerful perspective, especially in trial. Let, let me show you what I mean. Paul says, here I am, an apostle, doing the will of God. I want, I want you to notice where he's saying this from. He's saying it, according to Ephesians 3, from a, a prison cell. So that is, listen to this. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, what is it? The prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm going to come back to this for you Gentiles. The book of Ephesians is penned by Paul in a season of imprisonment. Paul is suffering. Suffering for obedience to Jesus. And what a perspective. And Paul has this, like, sometimes Paul is crazy with this stuff. You're just like, does he really think that way? Like at one point he's like, I, I'm, I'm suffering to fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Got to meet my quota, my suffering quota. Got to get that up. At another part, he's like, man, I just, I'm passionate. My, my one goal is to just be a part of the fellowship of sufferings. Like, that's not usually what churches sell when they're trying to get people to join their church. Like, hey, we want you to be a part of the fellowship of suffering. Just come and get in on this suffering for the Lord. It's really good. Connect card in the back, all right? Like, 
Paul had this radical perspective that I, I find like contradicts mine a lot. I don't know if you ever felt this way. Have you ever felt like your circumstance was an obstacle to God's will? Through you, especially? Like, God, I could serve you. I would probably say that. Like, Jesus, it seems like Paul could serve you so much more, not in a prison. Like, every time he does those missionary journey things, a lot of good things happen. Like, the whole world almost gets evangelized, you know? You ever felt, felt that way about your trial? Lord, if you would just bring in some more income through my job. Lord, if you would just fix this person. Lord, if you would just remove this circumstance. God, don't you know how much I could do for you if you removed these obstacles? What a perspective of faith this is. Isn't this beautiful? For Paul, trials weren't an obstacle, an obstacle to ministry in God's will. They were often an opportunity. That was his perspective. Like, God, here's what he says. He, t- he says, I'm in jail. He's like, for you guys. That's what he says. Now, think about this. Earlier, I, I really lifted up the book of Ephesians. It's like one of the greatest books in the Bible. Where did it come from? From a jail cell. Like Paul's like, I'm here for Soulless Church in Boca Raton to study the book of Ephesians. It's amazing what can happen in our lives when our perspective is that way. And I think like a big thing here is just learning to go, like here's the first, my first default when I'm having a hard time in life is I look at me. Anybody else? I'm just like, me, God, ah. Kind of, there's like the pity thing, and like, then there's like the, um, the me-centered kind of prayer thing. But what would happen if we started to go, Jesus, here's what I'm going through. I want to stay abiding in you. And I want to start to think, listen, listen to this, who is this for? Who's this for? How are you using this, God? What are you up to? What new, what new experience of ministry are you going to open up for me because of this? There's something about that eternal perspective that's really unique to Paul. So I, I think if you've studied Paul before, don't you think it's kind of the summary of his life in some ways? I do too. I disagreed with me through you. But who's the guy behind it? It's Paul. Let's go to the next G. All right, my Gs. Next one. Sorry about that. Next one is who are the ones getting it? Who are the ones getting it? The guy behind it is the great apostle Paul. You can really summarize his life from that phrase, he's an apostle by the will of God. Just beautiful. So many insights into his life from that one statement. Next question is, well, who's getting it? The second part of verse 1 tells us, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful, some translations say, and the faithful ones, in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells us exactly who's, who the intended recipient of this letter is. Um, some scholars believe that, um, well, let me back up. So it's the church at Ephesus. We see that. That's pretty obvious. The saints, the holy ones, who are holy not because of their behavior, but because of the cross. Okay? A saint is not, in scripture, a saint is not a Navy SEAL level of discipleship that you get to if you memorize enough verses and pray enough prayers and serve enough people. It's like, you know, I start as a believer, then I become a volunteer, and then it's like, then I become a disciple. When do I, be, when do I hit that platinum star level, you know? And then it's like, you just, it's, we can think that way. Um, there's, there's, there's one class of Christian, right? Sons and daughters of God. Amen? Okay? We're, all, we're called to serve and function in different ways. Some of us are like, you know, Kyle's called to an office of elder. There's, all, there's callings. 
But a saint in, in the scriptures, the saints are not a way to become memorialized as an extra, extra special Christian, highlighted above all the rest. You get your own stained glass. A saint is a, saint is a Christian who's been made holy through Jesus forever. He's perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. So he's just saying to the church in Ephesus, a community of Christians, he calls them faithful. Uh, just a beautiful picture of two zip codes, right? We're in culture, but we're also in Christ. We're in culture, we're in Christ. He's speaking to the church. Now, um, I'll talk about Ephesus for a second. One thing I'll mention about this letter is that many scholars and, and kind of popular opinion about this is that it's the first stop. Like, it's intended for Ephesus, but it's intended really how God's word is always intended, to go through Ephesus, to and through. The Ephes Ephesus is, the, is a coastal town in Asia Minor, and it's the first stop on a postal circuit. And there were seven churches, including Ephesus, on this postal circuit that many people believe um, one of Paul's uh, ministers would, would, was traveling with this letter, drops it off, and it was meant to circulate there on that postal circuit. Um, some really... If you, guess, if you want to nerd out in the Bible with me, some, some, a really cool place to see this is Revelation 2 and 3. If you read Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is speaking to the churches um, in that region of Asia Minor, and it starts with Ephesus, and it ends with Laodicea, and Jesus speaks to them in the order of that postal route. Isn't that cool? Jesus is like, give this to the postman. Let him deliver it, okay? So that's what a lot of people think about this, this letter, but we, regardless of what we know, um, or what we don't know, what we certainly know is it was intended for this church in this city, again, this city of Ephesus. Uh, at that time, Ephesus, this culture that this church is in, is a center globally, and especially locally there in Asia. It's, uh, in Asia Minor, it is the center of trade and commerce. Um, it's a center, central place for culture and business, even the arts and tourism, uh, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, was there in Ephesus. Many people would flock to visit and worship at this temple. Uh, Paul the Apostle makes his first visit in Ephesus during his second ministry journey. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18. In, in Paul's second missionary journey, Paul links up. Uh, he leads a couple co-workers to Christ. And what's what I, my favorite thing about Aquila and Priscilla, is that their names rhyme. That is literally my favorite thing. It's like, he's like, hi, I'm Aquila. She's like, he's like, what's your name? She's like, Priscilla. They're like, well, let's just put a ring on it right now, you know? I love that. I love that. When I first met Brittany, she's like, I'm Brittany. I'm like, I'm and Brittany. Right? That didn't happen. That's weird. Mm. Stop laughing. Paul leads these co-workers, Aquila and Priscilla, to Jesus, leads them to Jesus. And they become his companions in ministry. Paul goes to Ephesus with them on his second missionary journey, takes them along with them. They come to Ephesus, and they begin to, they, they begin to lay the groundwork of a church plant. They start to till the soil. They, get to, they, they start to contextualize. You know, if you're going to reach a culture, you should get to know the culture. Be a part of it. Hang out. Get to know how the people think and what the idols are. And that's what they begin to do. Uh, their first convert that we know of is a man named Apollos in Acts 18. A guy named Apollos. Um, and he is an eloquent Jewish speaker from Alexandria, Egypt, who's there in Ephesus teaching. It's a very, it was a common time and place 
for philosophy and oration. And, and Apollos was speaking the way of, of the scripture, but without Jesus. So they take Apollos aside, the best way to help someone, take them aside, not embarrass them publicly, and they have a, a one-on-one conversation. And they, they guide him, and they walk him to the truth. Now, we don't know exactly what happened there in Ephesus uh, in, in, by way of a church plan. We don't know. Paul's only there a short time. He dips out. Many people think maybe Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos, they're like this epic core team of this church plant, and maybe they start the work. All we know is that a few years later on Paul's third missionary journey, he comes back. Paul comes back, and when, uh, for homework, you can go back through this. Acts chapter 19 gives just a beautiful description of what was going on there. This first church, like this church started with some of the healthiest most beautiful things that you'd want to see with the work of God in a community. In Revelation, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm going to. In Revelation, Jesus calls this church. They left their first love. This is 40 years later, and he's calling them back to him. And what he says is this. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Repent of where you're at. And then he says this. Go back to doing what you were doing when you first got to know me. How much, of, how much do I need to hear that every day as a Christian? Just what if I f- remember? Oh, Jesus, I need to just re- remember you. I forget. Repent. Turn from where I've fallen t- to you. And make my life about the things that I once did when I was passionately in love with you as a new Christian. It's like the, the recipe for, for like fresh love in any relationship. And, but I love that part where, where Jesus says, Go back to doing, he says this, your first works. That's what he says. And, you know, it's, that's a good question. Like, what is that? What is he telling them to get back to? Well, Acts chapter 19 gives us the first kind of works of this church. Um, these are things that I hope mark our community as things that we could, in 10 years, be like, we should go back. Do you know what I'm saying? We got to stay here. Uh, here are, are, are three things. If you read Acts chapter 19, you see that these are the three things that you're going to find when you read Acts 19 about this church. The first thing you see is demonstrative power from the Holy Spirit on this church. The only way for a church to actually be a church, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We see that displayed in the beginning verses of Acts 19, 1 through 7. And when I'm speaking of the Holy Spirit and his power here, I'm not speaking just of the Holy Spirit as a theology. That's good to have good Holy Spirit theology. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit as the helper, the one who's in you, with you, comes upon you, fills you, empowers you to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not an enhancement to the Christian life. Like, you know what my Christian life could use just a little bit more? I could use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, listen, God himself with us, the Holy Spirit is not an enhancement to the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is the substance of the Christian life. Does that make sense? There's no following Jesus, knowing Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can even say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we're just talking about, this was last week, right? Normal Christianity, a life that's available and is seeking after the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and all that he wants in me and through me. And that's what you see first in Acts chapter 19. When this church is started, you see this demonstrative power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul comes into the community there, and I'll just kind of give you a, a quick snapshot. For the sake of time, we won't read through, through it all. But um, Paul comes back to Ephesus, and he finds, it says that he finds some disciples there. And 
And I love this question. He says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Paul's like, I'll take that as a no. And he said to them, then what were you baptized into? He's like, well, we were followers of John. And we, we, you know, he taught us repentance to trust in the Messiah that was going to come. And, and, and uh, Paul's going to be like, yeah, he came. And his, his power is available to you. The Spirit is poured out on sons and daughters of God. Um, and, and so Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. Um, but when they heard of this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So the power of the Holy Spirit is how this church started. It's, 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 let me say this. It's really easy for Christians and for a church to begin in the power of the Holy Spirit and move on to something else. It's really easy. I have noticed this tendency as one of the hardest things to fight for with leading a church into just five years. It's amazing how systematized everything can get. It's just so easy to rely on religious structures and patterns and habits when we're designed to rely on the Holy Spirit. So there's something important about this. Uh, but it wasn't just demonstrative power. This church started with, I want to say this, distinctive discipleship. Distinctive discipleship. They weren't just about like, oh, feel things for Jesus. You know, like, ah, I feel good. In Jesus' name, the end. Let's leave. Like, there's a lot of churches that are built around this idea of like, just you need, if you're not feeling the Holy Spirit, like, what are you doing? So like, there's more to it. There's more to it. Notice the next thing that Paul did after they come to faith in Christ. Notice this really interesting picture of distinctive discipleship. This is how this church started. Paul goes into the synagogue. This is often where he would go to evangelize. It was a public place that he could go preach the gospel. And for three months, Paul's like, I'm going to give three months to these homies, and I'm going to preach Christ. And I love that Paul is using reason and persuasion, a lost art in our culture. What we like to do is just yell louder at people which we always say here, like, if someone doesn't speak the same language as you, yelling louder is not going to lead them to hear what you're saying. Are you with me? Okay. What about all caps? Same thing. Okay. Same thing. Paul's reasoning. He's, he's becoming all things to all men. He's like, where are you at? How can I? You see this? And, and, and he's persuading them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Notice this. But when some of them were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So this is a really beautiful picture here of just the times and seasons of ministry. Um, I, I think there is a danger when churches are so inwardly focused that they're not engaged with the plentiful harvest of evangelism in their context, and we're just doing like so much of church gatherings can just be like holy huddle, holy spirit hoorahs, where we're just like getting smarter in the Bible. And there's a danger to that because what God does in here is for out there. What God's doing in you is for everyone you're with this week. Do we know that? There's a danger of that. Let me flip that around and say there's another danger. When all of church is driven around reaching and reaching alone. Got to get more people. Got to get more people to pray the prayer. Got to get more people in the seats. Got to get more people. And then it becomes got to get those people. Got to get them giving. Then it's like got to keep them giving. Got to keep them coming. I mean, I'm just telling you, this is what it can be like. I want you to just notice that Paul discerned that there was a point where his evangelism, that ministry of reaching, needed to pivot and become a, a ministry of discipleship. He's like, because Paul valued, he valued, like we value Great quantity of conversion. People always come to Solus and they're like, Andrew, I really like Solus, but like, 
like, what's your plan for how big it's going to get? Like, what's the number that you're going to just stop? Like, what? Stop what? Sharing the gospel with people? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, sorry, can't come in. We've hit our capacity of the church number we want. You know what I'm saying? And, they're, they're, and I get that. I get that. I get that size sometimes can lose some significant things. But we're about growing the kingdom of God in quality. It's the book of numbers for a reason. God cares about numbers, okay? But listen, not at the expense of, of quality. We're about quantity. But, but really the best way to reach a community, Jesus did this, the best way to reach the world is making disciples. That's what Jesus did. So that, that's what Paul did. He's like, come here, disciples. We're going to develop you theologically. Now, what ends up happening is the gospel spreads all throughout Asia Minor. Isn't that amazing? More than an evangelistic crusade, making disciples who will go out and make disciples and make disciples, like really developing Christians, has an effect. I want you to notice something incredible. Where did the church meet? At Don Estridge High Tech Middle School. Oh, wait, sorry. School of Tyrannus. I love that. This is where we get our model from. Uh, no. They reasoned daily. They rented out a school. Isn't that beautiful? They had a set-up teardown team. They had the whole thing. We need more volunteers. And that's where they planted the church. Beautiful. I just love that. School, a discipleship school. This is us, discipleship school, or discipleship ministry in a school. Amen? Should have named the church Tyrannus Solus Rex. I just want to say that, but <laughs> lost that, I lost that opportunity a long time ago. All right, we're going to close out this point, all right? This, <laughs> no more jokes. This church, this church started through demonstrative power. That demonstrative power was focused into the power of the Holy Spirit. There was distinctive discipleship. The word of God was an emphasis. People being trained in the scriptures, knowing God's truth to live according to God's truth. What we're called to do as well, not just quantity, but quality, develop disciples. That's what we're trying to do. That's what Jesus told us to do. And then probably my favorite part about this church is it led to disruptive revival. Disruptive revival. Um, Paul begins to disciple this, this community. It says that he did this for two years at Ephesus. Look at this again, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Was that through Paul? No, it's through these disciples he made. And then it tells us that God, as an apostle, we have this, this unique apostolic anointing that God gave the founders of his church to affirm the gospel. Unique miracles were done by the hands of Paul. These were unique to him, not to be replicated, you know, like on TBN or something. It says, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out from them. That's really interesting. Now, this is a, a unique, remarkable miracle that God decides to do through Paul. Like, his handkerchiefs are healing people. That's crazy. That's unique. It's not normative. This is unique. It says that. And notice what happens. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, imagine getting that business card, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm Bill. Itinerant uh, Jewish exorcist. Want to grab coffee? All right. Call me. Um, they took it upon themselves, wasn't their right to do this, to call in the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're using the power of Jesus through invoking the name of Jesus, but they took it upon themselves and and notice the key phrase, they were using the, the Jesus Paul, you see this? That Paul preaches. 
you can experience in your life the power of Jesus that your mom preaches, that your church preaches. You can be around it, you can see it, and it not be personal. This is really interesting, isn't it? Is Jesus the Jesus that Andrew preaches? Is he the Jesus that your family preaches? Is he the Jesus that your wife or your husband preaches? Is he the Jesus that the church preaches? Or is he Jesus that the Holy Spirit preaches to your heart? Is he your Jesus? Is he your Savior? Really important here. They're invoking the name of Jesus to use his power. They're like, we need to level up our exorcism, you know, uh, profession here. Let's use the name of Jesus. There were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did this. Notice this. And as they sought to do this, an evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know. This is amazing. I need, I'm waiting for this movie. Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, empowered them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house just casually naked and wounded. And I love that. It's like, that's embarrassing enough. This became known. That's the worst part. Poor guys. Someone was like posting it. <laughs> all right. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fe- Listen to this. This is amazing. Only Jesus could use a demonic manifestation to bring people to him. Like, like God really can work everything together for good. So, so the word spreads about the fact that what James says, that the demons tremble at the name of Jesus. This is power we've never heard of. And so fear falls on everyone, and the name of Jesus was magnified through these demons. Only God could do this. Now, I want you to see what happens. Many who had believed, many, they came confessing and telling their deeds. We, we start to see revival happen. The powerful name of Jesus. Um, it's amazing here, though. Like, I want to say this. We preach the gospel. We make disciples. But there's, like, there's nothing more compelling to a culture than just the power of Jesus at work in a community. That will lead people to him. Are you with me? Like, not just people that have a lot to say, but who are embodying a substantial Christian faith. This does something. Many people come to Jesus, and here's one of the best marks of true revival. They're confessing their sins. There's repentance. I love this. Many of those, they practice magic, brought their books together, and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it was total of 50,000 pieces of silver. Like, guys, this is not a youth group retreat, okay, (laughs) where we're throwing our ACDC album in the fire. This is the book of Acts. Chapter 19, where people are so turning away from the demonic influences they didn't even know were on their life. They're like, clean break, full separation. I am cutting myself off to the things of the world. I am repenting, and I'm burning any hint of my past life. It's beautiful. Now, this this quantity here, it's about $5 million in in our common day. What ends up happening is all of these converts to Christianity are destroying, read the rest of Acts 19 is remarkable. This church at Ephesus and and the revival that's happening where people are turning to Christ, it destroys the local economy that was built on idol worship. You see this? It's It's like everyone's getting saved and the big porn industry is going under. What a vision for the church and culture. 
let's shut down the secular economy because people are coming to Jesus. That's what happened, and a riot ensues. They're like, people are turning to Jesus. They're burning their, their magic books. They're, they're fully abandoning polytheism and syncretism. They're not worshiping any other. They're worshiping only Jesus, and it's hurting our economy. Good. This is what happens, disruptive discipleship. There's something about a good disruption, you know? So that's what this church started with, and this is what this church is called back to. Let's close out here. What, what's the goal of the book? And we'll end with the greeting. What's the goal? So we see the origins of this church. It's really beautiful. Paul writes the letter. Paul's involved in planning this church. Some of the marks of that church was the power of the Holy Spirit, Bible-based discipleship, and then disruptive revival that shut down even secular economy. Paul writes this letter to this community um, about nine years later. So this is nine years later Paul begins to pen this from prison, okay? Nine years later after what we just saw. Almost a decade later, Paul pens this letter to them, and we ask this question, and this is what's going to set us up for the weeks ahead. What was the goal of this book? And we even see an insight to that there. As Paul says to them, Paul lays out his intentions for this book. I want you to see this. The goal of why he's writing it is revealed in how he identifies them. He says, to the saints, I want you to notice this, and faithful to the faithful ones who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know the full dynamic of this church, but this is an interesting affirmation, I imagine, for any Christian to receive. Um, Paul affirms or he speaks over faithfulness in their life. Isn't that really cool? Now, the reason why this is so interesting is faithfulness is the point of the book of Ephesians. This is what the whole book is laid out for. The book of Ephesians, in one sentence, is about encouraging this church to remain faithful in Christ. To remain faithful in Christ. He, like, he calls them the faithful ones, and then proceeds for six chapters to call them to faithfulness. Isn't that interesting? This, this reminds me of um, when the Lord calls Gideon in Judges 6. Do you remember that? The Lord shows up to Gideon. Mike, that's your son's name, right? No. Okay. He just said no. I thought you smoked Caleb. That's right. Okay. My bad. That's not even, that's not even embarrassing. Okay. Oh, I meant to say Caleb. The Lord calls Caleb. No. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I love this. The Lord appears to Gideon as he's threshing. The Lord is with you. Look at this, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, who are you talking to? Mighty man of valor. No, they might have just left. But I'm, I'm Gideon. I could take any messages you might have for the mighty man of valor that you're trying to reach. We'll leave a voicemail. Tab on a stone or something, you know, like chiseled out. Like, and then Gideon goes on. Gideon goes on to be like, Lord, if you're with us, then what's happened? Like, Gideon goes on to display anything except courage and might and valor. This is, uh, this is what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 1. He is speaking identity over this church. Like, listen, sometimes you need people in your life to say over you what you'll never see about yourself. You need them to look you in the eyes and say, you are faithful in Jesus. It's who you are. It might not be how you feel, but you are, you are in Christ and his spirit is in you. You are faithful. 
Something about that. Something about Jesus saying, you are Simon, but you shall be Cephas. And I'm going to call you that name because that's who God is making you to be. One of the, the biggest sins that we could commit against each other is only seeing ourselves through the lens of our reputations. Only seeing ourselves through the lens of our lows. This is amazing. This will transform a person's life when you speak over who God has called them to be. When you just say, you're faithful. I, I know your life right now isn't reflecting faithfulness, but it's who you are in Jesus. And that's really Paul's whole intent with this book, is to call them into faithfulness. Um, I would, the book of Ephesians can be outlined a lot of different ways, and this is where I end here. This is how, um, this is how I would outline it. Interesting formatting there. All right, this is how I would outline it. Um, chapters 1 through 3 is where Paul is calling this church to remain faithfully seated in their position. That's the first thing he wants them to be faithful to do. Uh, they're, they're seated in heavenly places in Christ. For three whole chapters, you know the expression where it's like, don't just sit there. What? Do something. Paul says, don't do anything. Just sit there. Some of us don't know how to do this in Jesus. Where, where before you do anything, you sit and you saturate in the presence and truths of God over your life. And everything else flows from that. So, so the first three chapters is just all about what you have and who you are in Jesus. And just, he's like, be faithful to remain in that. In fact, that was really the indictment against this church, is that they left their first love. They didn't, they didn't remain faithfully. They were more concerned with what they had to do for God rather than what he wanted to do in them and what he has done already for them. So he's like, remain seated in your position. Don't leave a rootedness in your identity. And then chapters 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, is all about remaining active in your calling. There's a big shift that happens in chapter 4 where you go from three chapters of uh, indicatives, what are, what are truths, to chapter 4 says, now therefore, that's the proper order of the Christian life, imperatives, here what, here's what you need to do. And that's the proper order. You don't live your way into your position in Christ. You live out of who you are in Christ. So chapter 4 through 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 9, is all about what we're called to do, living out of that identity. And then Paul closes about with this idea of remaining strong remaining strong uh, in the spiritual fight. Faithfulness is the calling. That's the goal of the book. It's, I believe, the Lord's goal for us even this morning, and it's, it's where we're headed uh, for the next few weeks. Uh, ben, I'm going to invite you guys to come on up as we close with just a time to... Uh, here's what we like to do here as a church. We, we, we sit under the Word of God. We just receive what God has to say to us through His Word, by His Spirit. And then we create a moment, creating that moment here and now, where we just bring it to the Lord. That's what we do now. Um, and I think the greeting that comes from it, this last part here, is the best place for that to happen. With all that Paul is going to call this church to, and maybe even today you feel like there's a lot of things that the Lord has maybe spoke to you, you thought about. Notice the fuel for that life as we leave this room. Paul says, as he often does, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we lean into. Living in God's will. Remaining faithful in who he's called us to be. Being a church marked by the right things. Being people that are marked by the right things. You and I are not sent out of this place with the spirit of try harder. The week ahead of you it's not a week where God is looking on at you and your week going, do better. 
Here's the words from heaven over you and me this morning. Grace and peace. That comes to us through Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus goes to a cross. After living a sinless life, he goes to a cross and he takes upon himself your and my brokenness, your and my sin. As a display of love for you and me, he absorbs all of that. Fully satisfying the righteous requirements of our salvation. After being buried in that grave, he rises victoriously, securing our hope in him. Not for you to live from an exhausted sense of work harder, but for you to be an individual that just lives from free grace that pours upon you even this morning because of the work of that cross. So maybe just close your eyes for a minute. Just in your heart, pray this, say, Lord, I receive your grace this morning. I turn from achieving. I move to receiving. And if I think I've already received it and I know it, change that in me. And let me just say, Lord, I just receive your peace. I just think of Jesus telling his disciples, my peace I leave you. Some of us have been striving and fighting for peace. Today we just say, Jesus, we receive your peace. You receive all that you are and all that you've done. May your grace and peace fill us today. And as we go out, in Jesus' name, amen.